Before we get started this week, we want to acknowledge that language around differences in sexual development is still evolving. As always, here at the Incubator, we strive to use language that is inclusive and respectful. Thank you. This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Daphne, Monday, you ready? I'm ready. All right. <laughs> I think. Good. What are we doing this week? Endocrine. Endocrine and some thermal regulation. Oh, yes. Yes. Right? Yes. Okay. At the end of the week. At the end of the week. Okay. Um, exams in what? Two weeks? Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. It sure is. But um, it is what it is, right? It is what it is. We do what we can. <laughs> That's right. I forgot who I read said, it's not about studying everything, but it's about feeling like you have nothing left to study. Something, something, some, some motivational thing like that. I don't know. Well. It helped me. Okay. I'm not sure I ever felt like I had nothing left to study. No, but you can say, Ever. all right, this is what I'm going to study for the test. And then once I've gone through all these, like, there's always things you could go through. But I felt like once I had gone through what I said I was going to go through, I was like, that's it. Nothing else to do. Okay. Um, who asks the first question this week? I'll, I'll ask you first. Okay, go ahead then. You know, it's the same every week. <laughs> really? Yeah. I never noticed. All right. Good to know. Okay. Question two. A full-term infant born to parents from Saudi Arabia is noted to have ambiguous genitalia and elevated blood pressures. The rest of the physical exam is unremarkable. Laboratory evaluation reveals normal serum electrolytes with elevated serum androgens and deoxycorticosterone. Of the following, which enzymatic defect is responsible for this infant's congenital adrenal hyperplasia? A, aromatase, B, 5-alpha reductase, C, 11-beta-hydroxylase, D, 17-alpha-hydroxylase, or E, 21-hydroxylase. Okay. Um, the So the way I remember this, and uh, again, two weeks before the exam, whatever works, when 11-beta-hydroxylase is not working, deoxy uh, corticosterone or 11-deoxycortisol is increased because 11-beta-hydroxyl mm -hmm. starts with an E, deoxy starts with a D, and it's reminding me of all these very uh, <laughs> stupid commercials about erectile dysfunction products on radio, <laughs> ED, okay. and that's it. That's all I remember. So E11, you're D. saying you do have DOC. Yeah, exactly. That's increased. So in the because in this case you have elevated serum androgens and elevated deoxycorticosterone, I'm going C, 11 beta hydroxylase deficiency. Okay, that is that is the correct answer. So let's let's break it down. 11 beta hydroxylase deficiency is the second most common cause of congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Do you know which one is the most common? 21? That's right. 21 hydroxylase. Um, 11 beta hydroxylase occurs particularly in individuals of Middle Eastern descent. I didn't know that, but they mm. gave us a hint, I guess, in the question stem. 
It, it results from an inability to convert deoxycorticosterone or DOC to aldosterone and 11-deoxycortisol to cortisol. Thusly, you'll have increased DOC, which acts as uh, a mineral mineralocorticoid. So just even though you can't get to aldosterone, you will have a mineralocorticoid effect. And I think we'll come back to that at some point during the week. Yes. Um, there's no salt wasting because, like we said, DOC acts as a mineral corticoid. Male infants have normal external genitalia at birth, while females may have ambiguous genitalia, a variable severity because of increased androgen exposure. Diagnosis is confirmed with increased deoxycorticosterone and deoxycortisol concentrations. So let's talk about these others. Um, aromatase deficiency. So aromatase acts uh, very much near the end of the androgen pathway. It converts androstenedione to estrone and testosterone to estradiol. So if you don't have aromatase um, enzyme, you will get a backup of, of testosterone. So increased androgen, which would virilize um, an XX infant. You have mullerian ducts, um, but likely have clitoromegaly and other evidence of virilization like delayed bone age. 5-alpha reductase deficiency also acts near the end of the pathway, and it modulates the step between testosterone and DHT. And this is an important step because DHT is required for the development of the corpus spongiosum, the penile urethra, the corpus cavernosa of the penis or phallus, and development of the scrotum. So they have 5-alpha reductase deficiency. Um, these infants would have um, the internal genitalia, internal organs, um, as expected for XY, um, but um, under virilization of the external. 17-alpha um, is a step to move from pregnenolone to progesterone towards DHEA and cortisol. Um, but it doesn't mediate the production of aldosterone. So if you're deficient in 17-alpha, um, um, you still make aldosterone. Um, in fact, you'd make more aldosterone, so you have elevated blood pressure. You're not salt-wasting because you make aldosterone, but you would not anticipate the elevated androgens um, that you see in this stem. Um, and you may see an under-virilized XY infant. And then 21-hydroxylase, like we said, it's the most common, and it blocks the production of cortisol and aldosterone, um, but above uh, DOC. Um, so you don't get high blood pressure. It is salt-wasting because you lack aldosterone, and you would see virilization of an XX infant um, because of excess androgen production. Um, yeah, and that's when you usually your 17 OHP would, would really spike up. Be elevated, right. And that's why when we're concerned for CAH, the first test we would send is 17 OH, 17 OH um, not because it's always the right answer, but because it's the most likely to be the right answer. Um, right. Okay. okay, we're going to go over this multiple times this mm -hmm. week anyway. So I feel like um, if it gets a little bit confusing early on in the week, don't worry, we're, we're coming back to it. There's a lot of enzymes and we're going to probably go through different computation of which deficiencies. So um, I think it's good to, uh, to hammer this down because that's very high yield. Okay, question three, you ready? Ready. Question three is of the following, the most likely congenital cardiac defect 
in an infant of a diabetic mother is? Choice A, Epstein's anomaly. Choice B, tetralogy of fellow. Choice C, transposition of the great vessels. Choice D, tricuspid atresia. Choice E, truncus arteriosus. Okay, I'm not going to lie. I, I did not know the answer to this question. I It was a guess. Um, I know things that are related with Epstein's anomaly. I know things that are related to tetralogy of flow. I feel like TGA is the answer to a lot of things, but but honestly, I, I didn't remember. And I know way less um, associations with tricuspid atresia and truncus arteriosus. So I guessed transposition of the great vessels, but listen, it was the right answer. It's the right answer, correct? <laughs> it is the transposition of the great vessels. Uh, so the effects of maternal diabetes on the fetus are well known, and they include obviously a long list of things, uh, renal anomalies, caudal regression, neural tube defect, central nervous system and anomalies, small left colon, and obviously congenital heart disease. Uh, the typical uh, congenital heart disease uh, that we encounter with infants of diabetic mother mothers include uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, ventricular septal defect, and transposition of the great vessels. Um, the risk of congenital malformation correlates directly with the degree of uncontrolled uh, sh uh, glucose in uh, in the in the in the mother, and if uh, if a woman with diabetes achieves glycemic control after conception, the risk of fetal anomalies is seven point eight percent. But if glycemic control is attained prior to pregnancy, then the risk goes way way down from seven point eight to two point five percent. So uh, really, that could also be a question in terms of reducing the risk of of these anomalies um, in 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 uh, in patients who have diabetes. Really, trying to get glycemic control before pregnancy uh, would be would be key. Good job. I never guess right. If I have to guess, believe me, it's always wrong. <laughs> I my, wife, my wife guesses right. <laughs> but yeah, somehow. Okay. Question four. How does gestational diabetes impact a woman's health? Um, a, increases the likelihood of developing metabolic syndrome. B, increases the risk of pregnancy-related hypertension. C, significantly increases the lifetime risk of developing diabetes mellitus. D, all of the above, or E, none of the above. Gestational diabetes is a benign, self-limiting condition. Um, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's that's a question that's very interesting. So the first choice is increasing the likelihood of developing metabolic syndrome. I think that's correct. Increases the risk of pregnancy-related hypertension. I think that's correct, too. And then choice C was significantly increases the lifetime risk of developing diabetes mellitus. I think it's like 20% or something like that. So yeah, uh, choice D was probably correct, all of the above. And uh, yeah, choice C was, was a big no-no. Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of the disorders of pregnancy um, predisposed to lifetime risk. So um, the answer was all of the above. So all of these choices are correct. Gestational diabetes affects about 2% um, of pregnant people. It may be controlled by manipulations to the diet or may require insulin therapy. Um, effects of diabetes on the fetus are well known. And they, like you said, include congenital heart disease, um, specifically hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, VSDs, and transposition of the great arteries. Um, renal anomalies and caudal regression just like you said, <laughs> at small left colon. Recent evidence has demonstrated long-term effects of gestational diabetes on 
um, the birthing parent as well, notably a significant increase in the risk of diabetes with some estimates as high as 50% of those affected developing diabetes within 20 years of pregnancy. I know lots of people were like cringing when they were reading MFM and <laughs> reviewing this. Um, women with a history of gestational diabetes are also at risk of cardiovascular disease, obesity, and metabolic syndrome. In addition, there's an increased risk of pregnancy-induced hypertension, um, although the relationship is not clearly understood. Okay. Do we have time for more? Yeah, we do. Yes. Question five, Daphna. A full-term male infant has prolonged indirect hyperbilirubinemia, a large posterior fontanelle, hypotonia, and feeding difficulties. The neonatology fellow suspects that the infant has congenital hypothyroidism. Laboratory evaluation reveals a low thyroxine concentration and an elevated thyroid-stimulating hormone. The most likely cause of this infant's hypothyroidism is choice A, diiodase deficiency Choice B, organification defect. Choice C, penhypopituitarism. Choice C, thyroid dysgenesis. Choice E, thyroid stimulating hormone resistance. Okay, see this one? I thought I was so smart because I was like, yes, this kid has hypothyroidism. I know it. And then they tell you. And then I was like, okay, uh, I know what the labs will look like. No, they tell you. Um, I, I mean, and this is just this is just something to rote memorize that that the most common cause for um, congenital hypothyroidism is thyroid dysgenesis. So yeah, that is correct. Me. So congenital hypothyroidism presents exactly like it did in this in this vignette, right? You have prolonged uh, jaundice, a large posterior fontanelle. Sometimes they have an umbilical hernia. They could have macroglossia horse cry, abdominal distension, hypotonia, feeding difficulties, lethargy, uh, mottled skin, hypothermia, and even sometimes it could even develop a goiter. <laughs> the, long, the long-term consequences include uh, delayed growth, cognitive deficits, and delayed puberty. So the most common etiology of congenital hypothyroidism is thyroid dysgenesis, and that's in about 75% of cases, which basically results from the partial or complete absence of the thyroid gland. Um, thyroid dyshormogenesis occurs in about 10% of infants with congenital hypothyroidism and leads to an inadequate thyroid hormone production. It can be caused by uh, thyroid-stimulating hormone resistance, defect in the iodide transport, uh, thyroglobulin abnormalities, diiodase deficiency, or an organification defect. Now, any defect in the hypothalamic pituitary axis, such as penhypopit, can uh, cause um, uh, hypothyroidism, but are much less common, and they're present in about 5% of individuals affected by congenital hypothyroidism. It's associated with other hormone deficiencies, so the picture should be a bit more broad. Uh, neonatal hypothyroidism can also be caused by transient hypothyroidism. That's about 10% of cases, which is attributable to maternal medication, maternal antibodies, or neonatal iodine exposure. Uh, these preterm infants usually have, preterm infants in general have uh, transient hypothyroxinemia of prematurity of unknown etiology, but may be related to an immature hypothalamic pituitary axis. Um, we know that, for example, uh, the spike in TSH and T4 that you're expecting to see in a full-term baby as soon after birth is something that is very much 
attempted in preterm infants, but blunted because of the prematurity. So um, we know that that um, that they, they could have um, a little bit less functional thyroid thyroid gland. And then there's another entity called SIGU thyroid, which presents as a temporary low thyroid hormone levels and normal TSH hormone levels, and that's in the setting of an acute or chronic illness. Um, all these peripheral forms of congenital hypothyroidism, like thyroid hormone resistance, consumptive hypothyroidism, um, and the abnormal transmembrane transport of T4 into cells is extremely, extremely rare. Uh, so just to recap, the most common cause of, um, of congenital hypothyroidism is a primary form of congenital hypothyroidism, and that includes uh, thyroid dysgenesis, number one, dyshormogenesis, number two, and uh, then we can have all these transient forms that are about in, in 10%, and hypothalamic pituitary issues are 5% the rest. So yeah, good job. Thank you. Okay, we have time for one more. Okay, this is question six, um, and anyways, I was going to say, I, I feel like this is a common thing for us to see, so um, I think people will be familiar with it. You know, I was thinking, I've literally, I look for it all the time. Thyroid is always on my differential, and I have literally never seen a case of congenital hypothyroidism. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Not one. <laughs> Good for you. I know. <laughs> I'm always looking for it. <laughs> it's what the what the one I've seen though is that it's pretty dramatic when you do yeah. pick up on it and then you start um you start supplementing them. Right. How everything gets better. It's pretty yeah. it's pretty amazing. All right. So on this question six, a one week old full term infant has intraparenchymal cerebral hemorrhage. His urine output is ten mLs per kilo per hour. Laboratory evaluation reveals a sodium of 158, a potassium of 4.1, a chloride of 118, a bicarb of 30, and serum and urine osmolality of 310 milliosmoles and 125 milliosmoles, respectively. So that serum was 310 and urine was 125. Thank you. Upon administration of exogenous vasopressin, oh, did they put this in here or did I write this in here? They no, told no. us it was antidiuretic hormone? Yeah. Oh, that was very nice of them. <laughs> <laughs> the most likely impact on this infant's osmolality is A, a decrease in serum and urine osmolality, E, a decrease in serum osmolality and an increase in urine osmolality, C, an increase in serum and urine osmolality, D, increase in serum osmolality and a decrease in urine osmolality. Or E, no change in serum or urine osmolality. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so the way I remember vasopressin ADH, right? It's the hormone mm -hmm. that's associated with your walk through the desert. <laughs> mm -hmm. So when you really cannot afford to lose any water, ADH is your friend. Um, and so if you and give... it does what it says it does. It's exactly right. It's exactly right. And and here in this case, they even told you it's called anti-diuretic hormone, which is, I guess, why the survey at the end of the exam is for, so that you could thank them for that little. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, so in this case, if you gave uh, ADH uh, or vasopressin to this patient, you would expect um, that you would uh, retain more water. And so if you had more water, your serum osmolality should go down. And then if you're peeing much less water, the osmolality of your urine should increase. The only combination there that uh, describes that is choice B, 
So mm-hmm. that was my answer. That's right. Very good. So let's talk about more about um, this infant. The infant in this vignette likely has neurogenic or central diabetes insipidus or DI. Cause It's caused by a decrease in antidiuretic hormone or ADA as a result of the intracerebral hemorrhage. There are other intracranial lesions like tumors, AV malformations, which can also lead to central DI. About 10% of cases are idiopathic. The inadequate antidiuretic hormone production causes free water loss. So it's called antidiuretic hormone. And if you don't have it, you don't antidiurese, you diurese. So you lose um, free water. And this results in hypernatremia and an increase in serum osmolality and inappropriately dilute urine because all the free water is in the urine. Treatment with exogenous ADH um, will have the same effect as having um, endogenous uh, ADH. It will lead to a decrease in serum osmolality and an increase in urine osmolality. In contrast to central DI, individuals affected by nephrogenic DI have an inadequate renal response to ADH. So you would give vasopressin and you wouldn't see the change in concentration um, because it's that the the kidney is not responding um, to ADH. Uh, Similar to central DI, the disease is associated with increased serum osmolality and decreased serum osmolality. Um, However, serum ADH levels are normal or elevated because they are trying to make the kidneys work. Okay. Okay. That's it for today. That's it for today. That was fun, Daphna. Um, See you tomorrow. (laughs) Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.